What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Built on Purpose podcast, where each episode I interview exceptional leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, philosophers, and some straight up interesting people to explore their outlook on life, work, and leadership. My name is Brian Moore, co-founder and managing partner of Wise Scouts, and today I'm interviewing Brett Hurt, the co-founder and CEO of Data.World. To say Brett has accomplished a lot at a relatively young age would be an understatement, and a really big one at that. Brett's been a part of launching five startups and, with the help of three co-founders, has just launched his sixth. Brett grew up in a household of entrepreneurs. His dad was the inventor of the first-ever halogen fishing light. At age seven, Brett was given his first computer and began programming. This was the beginning of what would become a lifelong pursuit of Brett seeking to understand how things work. Between ages 7 and 21, Brett spent close to 40 hours every week programming. He credits his parents, in particular his mom, with supporting him and helping him find his true passion. This passion led him to the co-founding of Bizarre Voice, where he served as the president and CEO for seven and a half years, and the eventual IPO in 2012, which, by the way, was rated one of the top five IPOs in that year by the Wall Street Journal. Brett's current project, Data.World, is squarely focused on building the most meaningful, collaborative, and abundant data resource in the world. Pretty big stuff. This episode is full of meaningful life lessons and a series of great stories everyone will appreciate. Ladies and gentlemen, I bring you Brett Hurt. Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of the Built on Purpose podcast. And I am absolutely thrilled to welcome Brett Hurt today. Brett, welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Brian. It's a real honor to be on your program. Well, it's an honor to have you, my friend. And uh, I want to start with a quote, and it's a quote that I know is going to resonate quite a bit with you. Abraham Lincoln once said, there is just one way to bring up a child in the way he should go, and that is to travel that way yourself. And I share that quote because you were born into a family of entrepreneurs, truly. In, in fact, your dad was the inventor of the first halogen fishing light. Tell me and tell our audience, what was it like growing up in a, in a household of entrepreneurship and invention? What was it like being surrounded by that? It was incredibly cool, and I love that quote. I'm, I'm so glad you started with that quote. I don't, I don't realize, I don't know if you realize this, but when, uh, when I started Data.World, I put a blog post out on Lucky7.io, and I actually quoted Abraham Lincoln with that exact same quote. Um, and you know, the impression I wanted to have on our children in starting this business uh, very much was aligned with with what Abraham Lincoln said with that. Um, but just to get back to your question, um, it was an incredible experience growing up in an entrepreneurial household. You know, you don't you don't realize it at the time how much you're actually learning by working with your father and, and mother. I, they also had furniture stores that I would, I would go to and work at. And it just seemed kind of, you know, I, I was just brought up to kind of intuitively understand the customer and how they service the customer better and and ask the customer questions about how they found us and you know help them navigate through the store more efficiently and and you know and also do the hard work of just sweeping you know the floors <laughs> and having having uh, dust attacks as it as it infiltrated my nose and you know that that hard labor too is something that you never forget as a child and and I'm frequently commented on by by employees at the various startups I've I've founded as man you're willing to do everything it's like well I was kind of raised that way but I remember um I remember you know my the thing that I remember the most is that my friends were kind of jealous of my parents and. I didn't entirely understand it because, you know, they're my parents. You know, I took them for granted um, as a child, and it was kind of all I knew. Um, but, but what I realized as an adult was that what my friends were jealous about is that my parents truly, truly enjoyed their work. And they were jealous about the fact that, um, that their parents, they heard, 
kind of complaining about their jobs. And um, and they were like, you know, your dad is so cool and your mom is so cool. They they it's it's clear they really love what they do. And um, and that that kind of impression, you know, really settles in with a child. Sometimes that seed takes a long time to express. It, it expressed for me into adulthood. But that that left a huge mark on me that no matter what I do in life, I should do something that I'm truly passionate about or why do it at all. And there's so much, there's so many programs that kind of make fun of work. You know, there's the office, there's Silicon Valley, um, there's, you know, the movie Office Space. And these are all, you know, great fun, but they're a real tragedy if actually the a lot of people look at their work in that way. Well, yeah. And I mean, especially given the fact that uh, the data, which uh, no pun, actually every pun intended, because uh, I know we're going to talk about data uh, here a little bit later during our conversation, that the data certainly uh, shows that we end up spending a good three quarters of our adult lives at this thing we call work. And for it to be anything other than meaningful seems like an, an incredible waste of an opportunity. Yes, it is. And, you know, you only live once. And so why not really make it count? You know, we're, we're put on this earth to hopefully do great things. And um, it's, I, I find it to be a real tragedy that, uh, that so many people hate their work. Uh, and that's just, that's just no way to live. And, and that's no way to bring up a child either. Because um, your children are paying attention. You know, I, I paid attention to my parents and I I kind of have, you know, quote unquote, innate entrepreneurial skills, but they're innate because of the fact that I grew up in that environment. I, I naturally understood the environment because it was a part of who I was since I was born. Um, and, you know, I will forever thank my parents for that because it's helped me tremendously as an entrepreneur to to fall back on some of those lessons learned. And my parents were, in fact, some of the most important mentors I've ever had entrepreneurially after I became an adult. I, I very much miss them. It's very sad that, that they both passed away. Yeah, I'm very sorry. I uh, I, I read that uh, your dad back in 2008 and your mom here, uh, what, about a year or so ago? Not too terribly long ago. Uh, my mom was a little bit over four years ago. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought I saw 2015 somewhere. My apologies. No, no problem. I yeah, I miss miss her a lot. She was an incredible woman. Actually, my blog Lucky7.io is named um, as a tribute to her. You can you can read read that tribute online. I'll definitely check it out. Definitely check it out. I'm curious. Uh, I don't want to leave the the childhood uh, and the impact that your folks had uh, just yet. Do you, was there a certain point in your life where you just knew you were destined to follow in their footsteps and be an entrepreneur? Was there a particular moment or was it just a gradual combination, sort of a combinatorial effect of just the way you were raised? Well, I think it's both. Um, so it was a combinatorial effect of the way I was raised. Um, you know, if I trace back to my, my early roots, I started programming when I was seven years old. My mom, when she first got me um, the Pong game, you know, which back then was its own console. I don't know if you remember that. But oh, I, own console. I certainly do. And well, she, she could tell as a kid that I was really interested in how it worked. I wasn't just content playing the game. You know, I, I was maybe four years old then. I was really, I was really interested in like, how does electronics work? How does this actually happen? You know, how does this magic come to life? And so when I was seven, she read an article about the computer age being here and Atari had come out with one of the first personal computers. And she bought that for me because she thought that it, it would make me interested in mathematics. My grandfather taught at UT Austin in mathematics for over 35 years, that was his whole career. And my mom had, had majored in math as well as a, accounting. And, um, and so she thought that this would, you know, this would, uh, would really light me up. And she was right, but I don't, 
I don't think she ever anticipated how right she was. I mean, I then programmed over 40 hours a week from age seven to 21. And my mom needed to have kind of this superhuman discipline to keep everybody out of my way. Because you think about all the pressures of childhood, like you should be outside playing, you should be doing this and that, and, you know, in this activity and that activity. And, you know, one of my teachers, I think it was my second grade teacher, took my mom aside one time and told her that I was going to be a loser in life. She <laughs> told her that I was hopelessly lost, that, that, that all I did was play computers or talk about computers. And that's, and that's all I was going to know. And that she was really concerned about me. And it really offended my mom. My mom, by the way, didn't tell me that story until I was an adult and I had already become successful. Um, so, you know, this, this, uh, this passion for technology and how technology would change the world was really embedded from a very young age. And I'll forever thank my mom for sitting down with me, you know, learning how to program with me um, and, and, and giving me that gift of finding my passion. That's one of the most important jobs a parent has is to help, help a child find out what they're truly passionate about in life and then let them do it with no judgment, no matter what societal pressures come along. You know, not, not obviously that, you know, there are certain caveats there. Right? <laughs> I'm talking about, talking about do something that, you know, is looks like it'll be productive. Um, you know, if, 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 uh, well, anyways, we could get off on a tangent there, but, but there, there's a lot of judgment there in parenting. That's very, very important. Um, and my mom had that judgment to realize that this this could be the wave of the future and that I was interested in something that, that truly could be, you know, game-changing. Um, but then, you know, I, I having that kind of childhood, I didn't feel super comfortable interacting with lots of people. And I realized that I wanted to, to go into business um, when I was in uh, undergrad. I worked for Accenture full-time for my junior and senior year. Back then, it was called Anderson Consulting. That was very unusual. And the way I got that job, by the way, was very karmic. It was because when I was 10 years old, I helped an older kid who was 18 set up his first bulletin board system. And he remembered that and called me as an adult to say, hey, are you still in the computers? I may have a job for you here at Anderson Consulting. And I was like, well, I'm in, I'm in college and, you know, at UT Austin. He's like, that's okay. Come, come work for us. You know, you could do it while you're in school. And, and I did. Um, and then I really seriously thought about starting my own business with one of my best friends straight out of undergrad, but I just didn't feel quite ready. You know, I'd, I'd gained some people interaction skills and, and things like that at, at Accenture. I just didn't feel quite ready. And I went to go work for Deloitte and Touche Consulting Group. And that firm was very good to me and I performed very well there. But about a year into it, I felt very disappointed in myself. And I felt like, you know what? I, I, was, I was more ready than I gave myself credit for. And, you know, now's the time. And so I decided to become an entrepreneur then, and I was looking for a path to, to become one. And Deloitte had this program where they would pay for your MBA as long as you got into a top school. And I got into the Warden School and convinced them to, uh, to pay for my MBA, um, which was unusual. I was actually the first systems analyst in Deloitte Institute's history that, that convinced them to pay for it. They usually did it for the business analysts. And I wrote all of my essays about how at Warden I would launch my, my first business. And I actually launched uh, four businesses while I was at Warden and worked regularly till three, four in the morning, just kind of insane hours. I had unlimited energy back then and um, really established myself as an entrepreneur and, and never, never went back to Deloitte. They never paid for my MBA because I never went back. They would only pay if you went back for a period of three years. And, and the rest of the story is unfolded from there. 
you know, one of the things that and the rest uh, of the circuits unfolded from there. Yep. Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the things that uh, I know was a really interesting lesson that you learned early on, uh, in particular, I believe this came from your dad, uh, revolves around a story uh, about Walmart and Walmart come came knocking and wanted to put uh, a, a lot of uh, what your dad was working on in their stores. Can you share that Walmart story and the impact it's had? Well, it's it's an interesting story for for quite a few reasons. So let me let me tell you the story and then the analysis of it because the analysis has changed as I've become older. <laughs> like so many lessons you learn from parents, it takes takes a while to really settle in. I went through the rebellious teenage phase like anybody. Um, so my dad, when 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 I was ten years old, and I I actually remember so fondly like working on the labels for the fishing lights with them and you know really learning about direct marketing with them and it was it was very cool very very cool experience and I, I would even visit some of the retail stores that he sold the fishing lights in and and just the way people interacted with him there it was clear that that he was very well respected in that industry and um when I was 10 years old, he was approached by Walmart to sell his, his products. He had more than fishing lights, but they were all fishing-related products, to sell his products in all the Walmart stores nationwide. And he told them no. And I just couldn't believe it. I, I, I was so I, – I just couldn't understand, like, why he wouldn't take that opportunity to really go big. You know, he, he was comfortable – that would have been the chance to become a really big company. And I was angry. I mean, I was, I was, I was, I was really angry at him. And I remember that he sat me down at a, at a small table and he looked me straight in the eyes and he said, son, you may realize the value of keeping life simple one day, or you may not. That's your choice. And I, you know, I still was upset, right? Uh, but he just didn't want to take on the growth of having big factories and and really ramping up production. He was comfortable. He, you know, I, I, when I was reading the Four Hour Work Week many, many, many years later by Tim Ferriss, there's this great story about this Harvard Business MBA who's working at a very high pressure job, I think on Wall Street, who just needs to get away for a while. And he goes to Mexico and he goes fishing and he's standing next to a fisherman one day on this beautiful um, you know, coastline. And the fisherman says, hey, how are you doing? And, and, and he's like struck by the fact that, you know, the fisherman has, you know, good English and, um, you know, appears to be, you know, pretty well educated. And so he strikes up this conversation. He's like, well, how many of these fish are you catching every day? And, and he's like, well, just enough to feed my family. Um, and I also catch a few more for our neighbors. And he's like, well, this is your lucky day. Um, you and I are going to go into business together. I'll be the CEO of the company. And we're going to sell this fish all over, all over the place. And the guy says, and then what? And he says, well, we'll build a big company uh, together. And the guy says, and then what? And he says, well, we'll take that company public and we'll make a lot of money. And the guy says, and then what? And he said, well, then we can, uh, we can retire and, you know, go, you know, fish every day on some beautiful <laughs> And um, and so my dad was that guy, okay? He he knew what he wanted in life, and he was literally that guy. He would he would catch enough red snapper on his fishing trips, and I went on quite a few with him, and then give them away to neighbors. I mean, my mom, I remember my mom saying, "Brian, you are so generous. Like, what are you doing?" You know, um, he would give away like ninety percent of his fish. And he would not just give it away, he would clean the fish for them. He would make it, he would turn it into fillets where it was like ready to be cooked. 
um, and spend, you know, just hours and hours outside doing that kind of work. Well, later on in life, um, I became much more successful than my parents, at least financially speaking. And my dad would joke with me and he'd say, he would say, son, you never did get that lesson, did you? <laughs> and we'd start, we'd start laughing and, and I would say, well, dad, you know what my problem is? And he would say, yep, you're too, you're too damn ambitious. And then we'd laugh some more. So, you know, I can't, it took me a while to really understand that lesson. And in between taking Bizarre Voice public and taking, you know, three years to do startup investing and really just travel the world, um, I went back into the arena with data.world to build what will be my most ambitious business today. And, uh, and you know, part of the reason I took that three years in between is I wanted to experience life as my parents experienced life. I wanted to see what it was like to be that fisherman. And what I realized is that I am wired to be ambitious. I am wired to change the world through technology and that too should be honored, um, that that too is okay. And, and a huge part of the reason that I started this business was for our children. And I've, I've written about that story and, and happy to talk about that story. Um, but you know, I, I, I really was, I caught, I mean, just to be really candid with you, caught a little bit in a funk um, after losing both my parents and having this time where I had made enough money where I didn't need to work anymore. And I had the freedom of complete choice. And what did I choose to do after three years? I chose to go back into the arena with something even more ambitious than anything prior. Um, but I feel very at peace with that because at least I went through the journey to understand what their life was like and to conclude that there are many pros of their life, but it's just not me. It's just not who I'm wired to be. I, I even had a long walk with a, with a friend um, talking about this, and he looked at me and in a way liberated me, and he said, he said, Brett, you know, just because that was right for your parents doesn't mean that it's right for you. You're different people. I know you came from them, but, but you're different. You're a different person than they are. And you should honor the person that you are and the gifts that you have and the drive that you have. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, and that, you know, that conversation was one of, one of many seeds planted that got me to go back into the arena and I'm having an absolute blast. And I think my parents, if they were alive today, would be very proud of the fact that I went through that journey, you know, saw what their life was like, and ultimately concluded that basically the way I had been living was pretty much the right way <laughs> for who I am. Um, but maybe I have more wisdom and perspective than I did back then. You know, I wonder too if, and I know you've written about this quite a bit, that even during all of the, the businesses that you've launched as they were in their high growth phases, IPO phases, uh, and just all of the different ins and outs of you being a CEO, that you have always preached the importance, not only preached it, but you've led by example of reflection time and really taking a good four, five, six, sometimes up to 10 weeks off for vacation throughout the year and really reflection time throughout the year. So I wonder if that perhaps that lesson of your dad's, your dad's words of, you know, maybe you'll figure out uh, keeping life simple, maybe you won't, if that's that piece of advice sort of ringing through your life in how important it is uh, for you to continue that reflection time every year. Yeah, I, I, I do. I do believe that uh, that that's one of the ways I incorporated that lesson. Um, another way I incorporated it is for me, it's just absolutely non-negotiable. No matter what I do in life, um, it's non-negotiable that uh, that I must be there for our children's most important moments. You know, my parents. I realized 
as an adult were really your classic lifestyle entrepreneurs. I meet lifestyle entrepreneurs all the time now. Um, and they, you know, they have good businesses. They're not going to change the world in a huge way, but they're, they're changing the world in a small way. They're, they're doing something good for society. And they ultimately have an abundance of time with their family and, 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 and whatnot. I mean, you know, you look at someone like Elon Musk, for example, who is, you know, the founder of three companies simultaneously that are all like dramatically changing the world. You know, I'm sitting in one of his products right now. I'm sitting in a Tesla as we have this conversation, which is my favorite car by far now. And, uh, and you know, he, he, he's had a pretty challenging personal life. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know him personally. He, he also went to Warden. That's the only connection that we have in common. Uh, but he's had, you know, he's been divorced before. Um, I think he remarried, uh, his, you know, his, his longtime wife. Uh, but, you know, I'm sure that he works very, very, very hard. You know, there's lots of literature out there about how hard he works, but that's right for him. And thank God it's right for him. I mean, look at how much that guy is going to change the world, is changing the world. Um, you know, he, he's kind of the ultimate expression of an entrepreneur that can change the world. And so, you know, I, I choose to have some limits. And my, my limits are that no matter what's going on, I've got to be there for my children's most important moments. I just have to be. I've been married. 20 years, that's incredibly important to me. It's a huge part of who I am. Um, and I have to be there for those moments. And I have to have that reflection time as well, because that reflection time to me is what strengthens me as a leader. I find that's incredibly important um, to really understand what I've learned and be able to apply that. And, you know, that three years that I had right before this, this journey with data.world, um, was an incredible period of reflection time and strengthening time. And, and um, you know, sometimes you need to go through, I think, periods like that to realize what you've learned and then reapply it over and over again. And it's, it's, it's just, there's just too many people, I think, that put massive pressure on themselves to say, I'm the CEO of a startup. And therefore, I should work nonstop and not take time for themselves. Their their marriage could fall apart. Their their um, you know their physical health could fall apart. Um, their friendships could fall apart. And you know, I, I can understand like being passionate about what you're doing. And hopefully, all entrepreneurs are passionate about what they're doing. We know that's not true, but but you know that's my that's my hope for all entrepreneurs. Um, but they, if they if they don't take that time, I would actually argue that they'll create a worse company because companies are so often a reflection of the leaders at the top. And if the leader at the top isn't someone who's mentally balanced, who's really reflective and has learned um, and solidified those learnings, then you're going to have a whole company that's running around like chickens with their heads cut off. You think we're finally reaching a time and a place in the business world where the narcissistic, very ego-driven leader will become more of a an anomaly than what certainly has been, at least up till now, the norm in business? I think so. And I think it's a challenging question to ask with the Trump election just now behind us because you know, Trump in so many ways is a reflection of a very egotistical leader um, who said a lot of things that people thought would have disqualified him from the election. And so you asking me that question strikes a chord. And I want to I want to speak about that elephant in the room, because anybody listening to this is going to listen to my answer in the context of what just happened. So here's the thing. I think, first of all, we can read way too much into the election of Trump. Okay. Since the, since, let me just give you a few things. 
I think it's been since the 1940s that there's never been a Democrat or Republican president that's been in office more than two terms. Um, that, that, that the party swings back and forth, you know, from Republican to Democrat. That, that that just happens as a natural cycle. So Hillary Clinton would have needed to break that mold. Secondly, I think, you know, now with the benefit of hindsight, it's pretty clear that there were some problems with the way Hillary Clinton campaigned in some of the battleground states. And I did I did vote for, for Clinton. Um, you know, thirdly, she had to toe the party line uh, because, you know, Obama, she needed Obama's support. She had lost to Obama before. Obama's approval ratings were very high. So she had to be the establishment candidate. She was kind of boxed in. She couldn't be a change candidate. And the irony of that is Obama ran on a change platform. And change platforms are much more energizing to the voter base than not. You know, fourthly, Hillary Clinton did win the popular vote. Um, and, you know, yes, there were lot, there's lots of nuance to that. We just put out a data set on data.world from Gary Hoover. Gary Hoover um, is the founder of Hoover's, which is bought by Dun & Bradstreet. He's one of the most data-driven people in the world. Um, it does show that there's a lot of nuance in the way that Trump won. Like, for example, like the media is saying it's a, it's a rural versus a um, metro thing. It's actually not entirely accurate because you wouldn't count Long Island, for example, as rural. And there's only 2.2% of our country are farmers um, so in, or in the farming industry. And in Long Island, Trump actually won by 57%. So there's a lot of nuance to this. And that, that election data set kind of gives you the definitive view of the fact that there were some pretty sizable cities, which, which Trump still won in, um, even though those cities had low unemployment and were thriving, you know, were very well-educated cities and, and, and whatnot. So, you know, so let me let me just address the question. I do very much believe that we are becoming much more conscious as leaders. I really believe that. I believe that um, we're becoming much more moral, much more ethical. There's many more mirrors being held up with social media and and whatnot that are that are that are forcing leaders to reconcile with with their public persona to a much greater degree than in the past where things literally could happen in the back rooms with scotch and cigars you know but we're a long we're a long way past that doesn't mean that we're perfect doesn't mean that there's not going to be some shocks along the way to the system but you know things like meditation um, yoga all these things are at an all-time high I think people are much more reflective than they've ever been. I think this election itself is a galvanizing force. Um, you know, another problem with the election is that there were a lot of Democrats that didn't vote, tons and tons of Democrats that didn't vote. I myself am an independent, by the way. I'm not a, either a Democrat or, or a Republican. I, I truly vote for whoever I think the country needs at that point in time. Um, so anyways, long story short, I very much believe that that leaders are becoming more reflective and um, and that we are on this journey, um, this very conscious journey where where we are all becoming better and better leaders and people are demanding better and better leadership out of those that lead. Um, it's becoming much more accountable. I mean, it, it so is. I know that's a long ramble, Brian, but, no, but, no. I, but I feel like that context is super important, you know. It, it there's is. a lot of people confused confused by this election and saying, well, if Trump can get elected, then, you know, how conscious are we becoming? It's, it's much more nuanced than that. No, I, w I would agree with that. It is really interesting, though, and, and I hadn't thought about, at least for purposes of our conversation, you know, Trump's uh, win in the presidential election as, frankly, <laughs> at least my perception, and I believe you agree, uh, the opposite of um, leaders becoming less narcissistic and less ego driven. I mean, the way he positions himself certainly would have me believe that he is a leader much more akin to the way the world 
used to work and the way leadership uh, was held on a on a pedestal than the more collaborative, right. vulnerable, always learning, uh, you know, working to become more conscious leader that I think is the world we're heading into today or, or are already in, and hopefully it will become the majority at some point. So, it, you know, I think it's a great point and by no means does the presidential election uh, necessarily serve as a representation for the way the business world is operating. Uh, but it is, it's an interesting point. It's a really interesting point. I, I, you know, I do want to talk about data.world and I actually want to read a quote and I'm not sure if this quote came from the data.world website or if I saw it in an article, but I just love it. And I, and I want to use it to kick off the data.world discussion here. And that is, if the universe of data were suddenly made available, it would unleash the creativity of problem solvers to combine different data sets public and private, to develop innovative solutions to innumerable challenges. So that said, what exactly is data.world, Brett? Yeah, so that quote um, was on our website when we were in stealth mode, and that's all you could see for around six months until we launched our platform on July 11th. And um, Data.world is basically a project that in, that in many ways the world has been gearing up for, uh, but a lot of things need to come into play. So what it is, is it's a social network for people that love data to be able to share the data sets they love so that they can work more effectively on them with other people in the public as well as with their teams. And it's you know, at the end of the day, we're creating the most meaningful, the most abundant, and the most collaborative data resource in history. Um, that's a very, very ambitious goal, okay? And we're doing it as a public benefit corporation. Um, and that's the first time that I've founded a public benefit corporation. And, you know, the other nomenclature for this is a B Corp, and we're a certified B Corp as well. Um, but the reason I say that it's been in the making for a long time is you need to get to the point where storage costs and processing costs have fallen to the point where you could build something this ambitious. You also need to get to a point in the world where there are a lot of examples of the power of collaboration. And one of the best examples of that in the technology space is GitHub. GitHub now has over 14 million programmers from all around the world that are collaborating and sharing open source code. And it's become a force multiplier for people in the programming industry to the point where if you're a programmer, a lot of times you'll just share your GitHub link, your GitHub profile with a potential employer to show your work, show how much you've been collaborating out in the open, show the quality of the code that you've written, and I think it's moved the entire bell curve of programming to the right. It's made all programmers better because you have access to the Library of Alexander of Code and all the people that work on that code in one place. Strangely enough, that doesn't exist in the world of data until data.world. And it makes no sense because we're living here in this networked age you know, we have access to instant information in so many ways, but that isn't true with regards to data. Um, you can have these major breakthroughs. I was reading recently um, about a study out of a university where they showed that minority board members are definitively undercompensated. It was around a 30-year public company study. Well, you know, that meets the headlines. It makes the headlines in the, in the New York Times or whatnot. But what if someone wanted to work on that data? Where do they go? And the reality is it'd be very hard. You'd have to track down those professors. Maybe they have it in a format where you could work on it. Maybe they have it well-documented. Maybe they don't. But how many people are, are going to actually do that? Um, and it would be incredibly useful to be able to slice that data state by state if you were campaigning in a state to get affirmative action laws changed or, or anything of that nature, having that data available would be incredibly powerful to you. 
Um, but yet there's so many of these well-funded projects that make the headlines and then they die on the vine. And so the world that we're living in today is largely siloed when it comes to data. And that's an artifact of the past. And that's something that we're very much going to change with this company. And, and this company literally pulled me in mission-wise. I mean, it, it literally was something where I got so passionate about it when we were brainstorming that I felt like I must do this. Um, this, is, this is so important for the world that this is something that must happen. Um, and, it's, and I very much envision data.world being the company that, you know, my children use in college and, you know, and they asked me one day, hey, dad, what was it like before data.world? And I'll have to explain how you had to email people and maybe they would send you the data on a thumb drive and, you know, you couldn't tell how other people were working with the data. You couldn't tell how people were collaborating. And it was such a more difficult world to operate in. Um, but once we get all of this data in one place, as the quote says, but public and private, it's going to create an enormous opportunity to solve the world's problems, whether it's poverty, whether it's climate change, you know, whatever you can imagine, you know, cancer, all of that will be something that you can eventually address inside of data.world. And then everybody will be able to see how you addressed it and be able to create derivative work on top of it really will accelerate accelerate our overall progress in humanity much the way that github has accelerated overall ip development through making just an incredible social collaboration platform around code you know what's also just incredibly interesting to me about this work that you and your your team at data.world are doing is the impact that it will have on the way people find the organizations or companies that they may eventually work for because it sounds as if there's an opportunity for these data sets, which are obviously all revolving around challenges and problems and, and uh, issues that need to be solved that companies may start to form around these data sets and people are going to come together who would otherwise not know one another because there's a draw of these data sets that are pulling them to say, hey, this is a particular problem or challenge the world faces that I'd like to work on. And what may be an, a, a wonderful unintended, maybe intended, but uh, unintended consequence positive from this is people starting companies around these data sets because they're they're being pulled together from different parts of the world or different parts of uh, of the US uh, to, to work on it. It could be a, a pretty amazing uh, byproduct of this. Yeah, there's no doubt and, and and you know one of the brainstorms that we had as founders when we were deciding what business actually to launch is that we were talking about the future of work and we're talking exactly like like you're talking right now about how you know what would change if all of the world's most important data was out there visible where you could really work on it and see how other people are working on it and we talked about exactly that that it would form new companies that you know foundations would be far more efficient in solving problems um, that, you know, it'd be the ultimate base for AI and machine learning to work from. If we're going to get to that Star Trek future where, you know, Captain Picard can call up to the computer and the computer can give an, any answer to any question, we're going to get there through a large public works project where people get the data in a very accessible place and format it very well documented so that AI and machine learning can understand it in the first place. We're not going to get there through data being largely walled off and in silos and a lot of proprietary knowledge to be able to understand how to work with it because it's not well documented and people have moved on to other projects. I mean, it's just not going to happen. You know, you, you've got, you've got to have people codify the data to be able to get to that future, that future of abundance. 
You know, you uh, as you were giving a, a little bit of the backstory of Data.World, you glazed over it because I know it's so core to who you are, at least in the interactions I've had with you, that you set up Data.World as a public benefit corporation. There's a lot of folks who are still uh, unaware of what that actually means. So a couple things. One, why did you do that? Uh, and what has it meant for you? You know, so so there were several reasons why. I mean, one, the, the broadness of what we're doing and the importance of what we're doing needed to be protected for the long term. And the beautiful thing about a public benefit corporation is it's got all the advantages of a C corporation. And some people think it's a nonprofit or it's not. It's got all the same advantages of C corporation. They can go public just like a C corporation. BCs can back them just like a C corporation. Um, it has all the same transparency of a C corporation, same reporting requirements with SEC if you go public, et cetera, et cetera. What the C corporation lacks, and I love the fact that, you know, Brian, you and I were at the Conscious Capitalism CEO Summit together. And John Mackey on stage said that if he started a business today, he would start it as a public benefit corporation. That was super cool moment for me because John Mackey was one of our first investors here. And I have educated John Mackey quite a bit on why this is so important. I mean, clearly he's a well-educated guy um, and an incredible mentor. But I've, I've really educated him on why being a public benefit corporation is so important for data.world. And with a public benefit corporation, you do have additional requirements. And those additional requirements are that board members must um, always consider the public mission, and the public mission is publicly shared. As a public benefit corporation, you need to report on how you're fulfilling that public mission, and that that always should be shared. And Recently, we've, uh, we've written a letter, I wrote this letter that goes to all of our users when they come on board. And the responses I get back from that letter to new users where I describe why we're a public benefit corporation and why it matters is just awesome. <laughs> it's, it's, it's incredibly awesome to see the way that people react to that. Um, and, you know, it's opened up tons of doors for us. It's opened up doors with government. It's opened up doors with universities. It's opened up doors with foundations. Um, you know, at the end of the day, you can be a very conscious and soulful C corporation. This is not a, this is not a railing against C corporations by any stretch. But the question should be, why would you not be a public benefit corporation versus why should you be? There's no downside. There's only upside. Society is going to relate to a mission like this much more effectively if you set up that different and better way of incorporating. So why would you not do it? It's just that's the question we should be asking. And um, I've got a great FAQ that I can send you that you could include as a reading resource in this podcast that anybody could read. It's put out by B Labs, which is the leading nonprofit that certifies B corporations. We recently got certified by them, um, but it really explains the, the all the pros, and there's just no downside. That's really it's great to hear, and, and in particular, I remember back uh, I don't know three, four, five years ago. It was probably closer to four or five when I read the Conscious Capitalism book that John and Raj wrote together. That in the back of the book, there was a section, I believe it was, uh, you know, in sort of the footnotes or an appendix section that particularly addressed uh, B Corps. And it, it, it appeared uh, pretty clearly that the author's point of view was that it's not necessary. And to hear that, uh, you know, John and I was there with you to get up on stage and particularly say if he were to start a brand new organization today, he would do it that way is quite the 180 from the position in the book. And so it's uh, it's great to hear that more and more support is building uh, for the public benefit corporation movement. 
Yeah, I, 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 I agree. And, um, you know, we're all on this journey of constantly learning and even someone as iconic and, and um, amazing as John Mackey, you know, can also learn through others' actions. And I think, I think that he would say if he was on this podcast that he has, um, he has learned a lot about public benefit corporations through backing us as a startup and, and, and getting closer to it and seeing the advantages. I send out an investor update literally every single week. And it's been very clear that uh, being a public benefit corporation has not only helped us win lots of users over to data.world, but it's also helped us win lots and lots of partnerships in government with universities and the like. So, uh, you know, just to wrap, at least on the data.world piece, and then if you have time, I have one other area that I'd love to get into, but I want to be respectful. But to, to, to wrap on the data.world piece, for our audience, uh, for those that have yet to visit, first and foremost, go to data.world. That's the URL. Pretty darn easy. Again, data, D-A-T-A dot world. You know, for the folks out there that haven't been there yet, Brett, and are curious, uh, someone like me. What exactly is the best way to engage with what's happening at data.world right now, especially if our sort of natural orientation is not one of a data scientist or a researcher? Yeah, so you don't have to be a data scientist or a researcher, although clearly we have lots of features for that population. You could be a business analyst, you could be a statistician, you could be someone who just is very interested in the underlying data to put into Excel and, and, and work with it there for your particular state. Um, so to answer your question, you know, I would, I would recommend that people watch the two minute video that's on the data.world homepage um, to just understand what it's about. Um, and then when you sign up, Go in and look for some of the organizations that you care about, whether it's whether it's NASA or it's your city. You want to see what government your city is putting out, or you um, care about census data. And you know, U.S. Census has been an early partner of ours, or your university. Go in there and look for some of those organizations and follow them. Go look for data sets that you may be interested in. Um, you know, maybe maybe your cause is cancer or, or, or whatnot, and go out there and look at that. And um, what you'll do is you'll start to see more and more functionality come out every week. Every week we're launching a tremendous amount of functionality that addresses your needs as you interact with the system. We're incredibly metrics-driven. Every day we look at metrics and have a metric stand-up meeting and discuss how we're evolving our solution. Um, but I would encourage you to poke around and, and start to engage with it. Maybe, maybe you come in not to download data at all, but you come in just to, just to have discussion about the data. Like when we launched with the ADL, with Anti-Defamation League, um, they announced a historic partnership with us at, the first of a, uh, at a first of its kind event called Never Is Now because they've seen this huge increase in hate crimes ever since um, the presidential election. Um, there's some pretty bad actors out there that are, that are using the election to, um, to basically propagate hate crimes, and it's pretty, it's pretty unprecedented. They haven't seen an increase like this in decades. Um, well, the ADL wanted to call attention to that data and combine it with the FBI's data on hate crimes. That's now available at data.world slash ADL. That may be a cause that you're interested in, and you may not have the skills to analyze that data today. Um, so you jump into a discussion and ask questions, and then other people that are analyzing the data can give you the answers to those questions. Um, but there's some pretty intuitive stuff in data.world that that has launched in the past few weeks where it makes it very easy to create your own visualization, very easy to plug it into, you know, whatever system you like to use for analytics. Um, so there's, there's quite a bit there, even for the more novice user today. So if we do uh, have time, uh, I'd love to touch on one uh, additional topic. Uh, how are we doing on time? We're doing great. 
Fantastic. So in, uh, in 2015, you were invited and delivered at the University of Texas Masters of Science and Technology Commercialization. You delivered the commencement speech. And so first and foremost, congratulations on doing that, Brett. Um, Thank you. That was an honor. Thank you. I bet. One of the key messages, there were several, uh, maybe not so much the key message, but there was a particular uh, focus uh, of the speech. And you said that this is the golden age of technology, that the time we're living in right Mm -hmm. now is the golden age of technology. What did you mean by that? Well, there's, there's a brilliant book written by an author, um, Peter Diamandis, called Abundance. And if you haven't read that book, that's a must read. And I, I wrote the longest book review of any book I've ever read on Lucky7.io. Uh, it's called An Abundantly Long Review of the Book Abundance. <laughs> <laughs> How appropriate. Um, and uh, and what I what I meant by that is that you have, you know, it's it's one thing when I was a kid and technology was regulated to Pong and and then early computers and and affected very few people. Now technology affects everything, and we're going to be shaping the physical world, both our bodies um, as well as our minds as well as the physical world that you see all around you, we're going to be shaping that in an exponential way through the use of technology in our lifetime. I mean, this is the most exciting time to be alive. Um, it is very possible in our lifetimes that we're going to eradicate almost all disease. It's very possible. Um, as processing power goes up, as storage um, you know, capacity goes up, it makes it easier and easier to solve almost any problem you can imagine. Again, hard for people to think about maybe right now um, if they're, you know, disgruntled about the election or, or whatnot. But on e- in every measure, almost that you can think of, the world is getting better. You know, we're we're eradicating poverty at a faster pace than ever before. We're eradicating hunger at a faster pace than ever before. There's still lots and lots of stuff to be depressed about in the world, whether it's Syria or, or, or any, you know, or, or some other pretty dire circumstances. But if you look at it in the aggregate, we are living in the golden age of technology. Technology has always been what's progressed humanity. I mean, if it wasn't for technology, we would all be farming today and breaking our backs out there in the field um, just to stay alive. Um, You know, the Industrial Revolution really led to a revolution in the way we sourced food, which led to a revolution in the way we addressed hunger throughout the world and those that were starving. Uh, But we now live in an age where we're going to be able to genetically engineer food very shortly to grow our meat instead of literally slaughter animals um, to to uh, source our meat, where we can just grow it um, in a uh, you know vat type of process, where it's much more safe than eating eating it from a, from an animal that may be in proximity with the disease. You know, goodbye things like mad cow disease and things like that. We're going to be able to shape the physical environment. We're literally, you know, it's almost a, a video game like and that you could build something from a nanoscale um, into a physical structure. Um, it's going to revolutionize the way we do construction. Um, you know, in every single dimension you can imagine, um, technology is going to massively improve our lives. Now, what what we need to be mindful of is that, you know, there, there is a lot of truth to this election just kind of hacked our primal brains uh, because there was a lot of spreading of fake news. That's just proven, right? Facebook is now on the case and addressing that, that there are a lot of people in Eastern Europe that were, that were hacking 
kind of our primal instincts with fake news, which got shared and, and definitely had an effect in this election. So there are going to be counterbalancing trends here, but overall in the aggregate, things are going to get much better. But as leaders, we're gonna to have to get even more mindful. We're gonna to have to get even more reflective. We're gonna to have to have the ability to unplug um, occasionally and, um, and, and really reflect on what we've learned. And that's gonna get harder and harder as Wi-Fi is everywhere and socials everywhere. And you, know, you can constantly just be plugged in in a very surface level instead of looking at things in a very deep level. Um, so I, I, I predict that, you know, things like meditation, yoga will be even more on the rise. Um, there will be a lot more counterbalancing uh, mindfulness practices that come along. And then eventually we'll merge with the machines and it'll, you know, your, your memory will be extended by, um, by computing power and, and uh, storage power. Um, you know, just kind of anything you can imagine, um, you know, from science fiction is going to happen. And I don't believe that it's going to be dystopian. I believe that that uh, that human beings are wired to be much more positive than we get credit for. There's much more positive happening constantly in the world than the 24-7 news media cycle would, would, would lead you to believe. Um, if you just take your own experiences and kind of open your eyes and really look around for graciousness and 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 love and and all those great human characteristics that are that are out there in abundance if you look for them um so it's going to be it's going to be a wild time i mean we're we're living in you know the most amazing period in history and we saw how much the industrial revolution changed the world well imagine all physical objects being transformed being you know internet connected imagine the physical environment being shaped by nanotechnology imagine your food being grown instead of animal slaughtered imagine like like uh you know almost anything you can think of um to live a more comfortable and meaningful life and it's going to be there and it's going to happen it's going to happen in our lifetime uh, it is fascinating to think about and i know one uh, particular data point that uh, <clears throat> excuse me, that uh, that I'm fascinated by is the increase, uh, the, the expected major increase in life expectancy as we continue to push forward and eradicate some of these diseases. You know, we've already seen a massive increase in life expectancy. And so the impact that that's going to have yeah. on our work and what we choose to do as we get older in life and this concept of retirement that I think is going to age out here before too long that, you know, if you, if, if people start retiring at 50 or 60 or 70 and you're going to live to 110, 120, what are you going to do? You know, the concept of retirement right. is going to change drastically. And so as a result, drastically. drastically, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's a fascinating thought. Uh, and certainly, uh, there are a lot of really, really smart people uh, who are focused on that. So, uh, I, well, and, and you know, one thing that never changes, Brian, that like is the universal truth, is that at the end of the day, the meaning to life is a life of meaning. Like if you read any religious text, any philosophical text, it's all getting to that same root. Yep. And so, even if, even if our life expectancy increases to two hundred years, let's say. Um, I don't think that'll happen necessarily in our lifetime, but it may increase to 150 years at some point in our lifetime, and you're in my lifetime. Um, what will happen in that world, I think, is people will reinvent themselves, and it may be normal to have four or five careers in your lifetime versus one or two. And that's going to be beautiful. I mean, you know, that, that, I think that's going to be a very beautiful thing. It happens, and, and by the way, the expectation is that if you can live to 150, that we've already figured out how to regenerate, you know, massive components of your body and brain um, to be able to very comfortably live to that age. Right. Um, but yeah, there's, I mean, all these things we're going to have to grapple with um, 
you know, in our lifetime, and it's it's gonna it's gonna be really interesting how we grapple with them with society. But I, I I'm very confident um, that we'll figure it out in a in a good way, and that that uh, good always prevails um, when it comes to human beings in the end. Amen to that. I think. Uh... Uh, I think that's the best place to at least wrap for now. I could go on and on. I'll tell you, there was a few other topics I would have loved to have uh, to have touched on. Your Henry Crown Fellowship, your deep, deep and passionate commitment to the city of Austin. I would have loved to uh, to touch on Bizarre Voice, even though I know it's uh, you know uh, an accomplishment of the past. I think it's uh, an incredibly worthy one that's worth touching on. So I have a feeling we're going to have to do a part two here uh, in the not too distant future. So Brett, what a, what a wonderful time spent. Great conversation. Can't thank you enough for spending the time you did with me. I wish you and your family a fantastic, happy, healthy holiday season. And, uh, and I have a feeling uh, we're going to have a part two on the books here uh, in 2017. Well, that'd be, that'd be a lot of fun, Brian. And, and, and thanks again. And, it's a real pleasure to serve with you on the board of conscious capitalism and, you know, right back at you with those kind words. Well, thanks. You have a great, great holiday. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. And uh, best of luck with data.world and uh, we'll be chatting soon. All right. Great. Thank you. Thanks, Brett. I hope you enjoyed hearing our interview with Brett. If you're interested in a transcribed version of this show or want to listen to more episodes of the Built on Purpose podcast, please visit yscouts.com forward slash podcast. If you'd like to recommend someone as a guest for the show, please drop me a line at brian at yscouts.com. I promise more great interviews are on the way. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>